to get us where we're headed here today, um, I've got to show you a little cat video. Just a second. Not quite yet. Because uh, i got to set it up, because those, we've got so many new people around here, you may not know my checkered history with cats. And so, as you've probably picked up from comments, cats are not my favorite creatures in God's creation. There was never a prenup, but if there ever would have been, no cats would have been in it. Um, we, we just kind of had this understanding, right? And then, a couple years ago, as Winston and I were heading home after a Saturday night service, um, this mangy, scraggly cat comes up to us as we get out of the car uh, up at my house and follows us meowing all the way up to the front door. And I looked at Winston and I said, don't let my wife or kids find out about this. And then it was there the next morning. Shadow was a great cat, and we all loved Shadow. However, unfortunately, she disappeared into wherever cats disappear into. Our story for our kids is that she found a new home. She adopted a new family. Um, but that was, that was sad. Everybody was sad last May when Shadow disappeared. But now we have a second cat in our home. Let me introduce you to this cat. This is Obsidian. My kids call it OB. But I call him OD, which means outdoor, outdoor cat. Because <clears throat> a friend at church had this cat that wasn't working out, and it, it was out an outdoor cat, supposedly, and wouldn't ever come in the house, but it needed a new home, couldn't live in their neighborhood. And so my children and my wife begged me, and I laid down the law. I said, okay, but here's the rules. It's going to sleep in the garage, and then it's going to be an outdoor cat, outdoor cat. Does not come in the house. And so I laid the law down. And um, do you, anybody see the problem with outdoor cat? Now, let me just say, it, it was my fault because one evening as we're in our, in our room late, um, I'm sitting in, in the chair, we're watching something, and I see a flash in the corner and there's a mouse in our bedroom. And I'm like, ah, oh, nasty. <clears throat> as much as cats aren't my favorite, mice I hate. Okay, so... Um, so I said to my wife, go get the cat, bring the cat in. She brought the cat in, and like within minutes, the cat had the mouse. It was epic. And, uh, and so then I, I had to let the cat spend the night in the house as a reward for killing the mouse. You know, I'm not heartless. Um, <laughs> but ever since then, the cat has determined that its rightful home is in our house. And, and so, I mean, this cat is dedicated to living and becoming and getting into our house. Let me show you a little cat video, because those joining us online, you were probably watching cat videos already, and then you just found a church service. Um, so, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> yeah. The cat jumps up, as you can see, and tries to get into the house by opening the door handle, uh, the cat gnawed and clawed away the weather stripping on that door trying to get in the house. And then the other day, um, my wife and I are talking in the bedroom. We had the window just cracked just a little bit, but somehow the cat heard our voice. And I turn around, and I hear this noise, and I see the cat hanging off the screen trying to get in the bedroom window. And the cat is very determined by its own efforts to get into my house. It'll come, it'll like rub on my leg and like try to like butter me up. It'll stand right next to the door when I come home and like just be right there. 
and I'll actually sneak around to one of the other doors and walk in the house just so the cat doesn't get in there. Um, but then here's the problem. Every other family member in the house just opens the door and lets the cat walk right in. And that is what led to our 5 a.m. conversation yesterday morning where I was saying to my wife, get the cat off the bed. Because the thing purrs like a freight train. It's insane. So anyway, so that's my checkered history, and that's my, that's my lament. That's my problem, guys, um, currently. So we are in a three-week series in the first 18 verses of the book of John. And later in the year, we're going to begin a journey throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. But as you probably know, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus, and they're called Gospels, Good News. And where Matthew starts his account of Jesus' life with this interesting genealogy, Luke actually, he starts with a carefully investigated historical documentation of the life and the birth and the life of Jesus. John wastes no time right at the beginning of his book getting to the bigger picture, the significance, revealing the cosmic meaning, the significance of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And so I just want to um, read what we started with last week and then the passage we're going to go through today in the book of John. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, it'll be on the screen as well. But we're going to read John chapter 1, verse 6 through 13, and then we're going to come back and dig into verses 6 through 13. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This incredible introduction to the story and the account of Jesus' life, he's about ready to lay out. And he starts with this big concept we saw last week in Greek philosophy. He says, in the beginning, which draws our hearts and our minds back to, to the creation, the, the very words that begin the whole story off, in the beginning. But where Genesis begins with the divine being doing, he, John, begins with what precedes that doing. In the beginning was the word was the word. And in Greek philosophy, 500 years before Jesus, they started talking about this and this phrase, the logos, the word. And they believed that the universe was held together by logic and by reason. In Hebrew philosophy, philosophers started um, considering this. And as they looked at all these Old Testament scriptures, discovering these, these ideas, and, and Hebrew philosophy felt like the logos was part of the power of God, the Godhead. 
And these, all these thoughts were swirling around in the culture, and John comes along, and he, and he says, I want to show you, um, you pagan philosophers, the, the, the word isn't an abstract principle. Um, Jewish people, the word isn't just a, a power. The word is personal. The word is a he, and let me introduce him to you. And a few verses down, we get to his name. And, of course, that name is the name above all names, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus, then we see, is the word. He's with God. He he precedes the creation. He is um, unique, separate uh, from God, and yet with God. And we get this concept of the Trinity, the three and one. And we see that Jesus is the active creator of all things, In fact, last week we saw the scripture where Paul says, all things were created through him and for him, through him and for him, that you and I, we were created through him, but not just that, we were created for him. Our lives were designed to be lived for him. And that really explains the restlessness and the emptiness that so many of us feel. St. Augustine said this, um, this profound thing. He said, you formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. And maybe that restlessness is what you're feeling this morning. It's what you're struggling with, and it's because you placed the purpose of your life in something different, but you were created through him and for him. And we see that it's Jesus He's alive. He's the life. He's the light, and he's shining, present tense, shining. Whatever darkness you find yourself in, if you open your life to the light, the darkness cannot overcome it. And so, this week, we're going to discover some really interesting stuff as we continue on in verses 6 through 13. Why is it that all four accounts of Jesus start with John, this John the Baptist, this intense, passionate witness for Jesus? How is it that they did not recognize or receive the light And they ended up missing God. What can you do to avoid missing God in your life? Why would someone reject the offer of family, of divine adoption, of being part of the family of God? Is our personal autonomy and self-direction really worth missing that? Those are questions that John will will bring answers to as we continue. a number of years ago, I believe I was about 10 or 11 years old, and my parents began praying about adopting. And they went through the whole process of going through the state process and getting certified and the home certification and everything. And then the, the, the state found this teenage boy. He was 15 years old, lived in New Mexico. His name um, is Joe. And Joe, uh, they found, I mean, it was kind of an unusual, nobody really wanted to adopt. So many people don't want to adopt older kids. And so Joe had never been placed in a permanent home. And there was something about it that just grabbed my parents' heart. And they decided we want to adopt Joe. And so we flew down and met Joe down in New Mexico. And I remember going into Carlsbad Caverns with him and hanging out and just had this great time getting to know him and get to know the foster family that he was from. And then, um, that Christmas, a few months later, they flew him up, and he spent Christmas with us, and we went to the mountains and hung out in the snow and just fell in love with Joe. And I think he really loved our family. And, and we wanted him in our family. He was invited into our family, and all he had to do 
was say yes. And we'll come back to Joe a little bit later. But I just want to get back to the scripture and dig into it here in verse 6. Let's go back to verse 6. It says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So you see this guy, John, and this is John the baptizer. You know him as John the Baptist, and that might be a little confusing because uh, Jesus called him the greatest man that ever lived. And so you're like, you know, if you're, if you're, I don't know, Methodist or Lutheran background, you might feel a little left out, you know. But he's actually John the baptizer, and he has the name John the Baptist or the baptizer because his primary ministry was coming and announcing that the kingdom of God was coming to prepare your hearts in fact, he, had, he, he was the forerunner, the frontrunner, the forerunner of Jesus. He was the herald of the greatest news ever. And to understand this, what you have to understand is in, in first century Jewish thought, they, they saw the, the time and they saw the universe basically as the present age, the age when, when Satan's loose and, and sin is having a heyday on the earth and there's corruption and evil empires are ruling everything, but then there's an age to come when God's going to show up, when God's actually going to kill sin and death and Satan and redeem creation, bring creation back to what it was originally intended to be at Eden. The age, the present age, and the age to come. And before the age to come would come, they knew because the Hebrew scriptures ended this way. It's been 400 years since scripture was written. We call them the 400 years of silence. But at the very end of it, there's this prophet named Malachi. And he said this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, speaking on behalf of God. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. Remember the language of the new covenant, that's significant, whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. And then at the very end of that book, the last couple sentences, it says, before the great day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah is coming. If you remember Elijah, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. And so there was going to be a prophet who was going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah that would be the forerunner of Messiah. And Jesus comes along and says, that was John. He came in the spirit of Elijah. If you want to believe it, he was the Elijah that was to come. And now he was a pretty intense guy, to say the least. Ladies, you, depending on your family, you may have been a little frightened to bring this guy home to meet your, your parents. He had taken the Nazarite vow, and so his... History tells us his hair would have been like super long in like six or seven big dreadlocks, super long beard that he would not have cut. And he would probably have wrapped his hair around and carried it around in a sack. And then he had this camel skin like garment on and he lived out in the desert like the poorest of poor kind of lifestyle. Um, but he lived out in the desert eating locusts, wild grasshoppers and honey. And he, he command, I mean, he was just intense. He would talk to the, the powerful religious leaders and call them like, you brood of vipers. He just wouldn't let down. His life was so intense. He had an intensity around the calling that God had given him. His life was about his mission. And I think there's things we can learn from him. We'll talk about it more when we launch this full series through the gospel later. 
but the intensity he had about the thing. He, he comes flat out and says, hey, it's not about me. A while later, his disciples are like, Jesus is baptizing a bunch more people than you. And he's like, well, I must decrease, he must increase. You see this incredible humility in John. He says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals even of the Messiah who is to come. There's this incredible humility, which I think is part of the reason why Jesus calls him the greatest person who ever lived up to that time. Because he fulfilled his mission. He ended up dying for his mission, being beheaded by Herod. But he fulfilled the mission God gave him, that life was about something that's bigger than himself. And as the Holy Spirit came on him and inspired him, he prophesied that the Lamb of God was coming, and he actually pointed at Jesus as he saw the Holy Spirit descending and said, look, the Lamb of God. As Jesus came out of the water, he said, behold, I saw the Spirit descending. But, it, but unlike you know, Old Testament prophets, when the Spirit would come on them for a period of time, it stayed on Jesus. For John, it was all about his mission. It was all about his calling. Let me just say, maybe the reason that you're kind of ho-hum and, and bored in your Christian life is because you have lost sight of the mission you've been given in life. Because you've lost sight of the passion you are to have around it. That your life is about living for his kingdom. That, that your life is about sharing Jesus with those in your circle. Your circle, my circle, my responsibility it's about inviting. It's about praying for. It's about living into kingdom life, that, that everything else we do in life finds its context in the point that that's the forefront. That's, that's the important, the most important thing. And as the Holy Spirit now indwells us as followers of Jesus, he gives us the power and the courage to open our mouths and to speak words of life and words of Jesus and encouragement to those that he puts in our life. And maybe part of the reason why you're so kind of ho-hum and bored about your faith is because you have no intensity. You have no passion. It's just so safe. You never open your mouth and talk to anybody. Just saying. You want to experience some excitement about Jesus in your life? Start living into his kingdom. Start opening your mouth. Start living on the edge a little bit when it comes to your faith. Then you'll experience it. And John paints such an incredible picture for us of someone whose life was all about his mission. And we see he was a, a witness, a witness. You know, everyone's life bears witness to the value and importance of someone or something. John's was clearly about Jesus. What, what does your life bear witness to? It says he was not the light but later, John the writer, the author is talking about John the Baptist. He says he's, he was a witness. He, people were illuminated by him. And here's the idea behind that, because Jesus also looks at his disciples and consequently to you and I and says this, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we are the light ourselves, but what it means is we reflect the light of Jesus back to the world around that if your life is being lived the way you're called to live, you're reflecting Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're reflecting the life and the light of Jesus back to everyone around you, that there's something different, there's something shiny about you. Have, have any of you ever um, done like a survival course when you were a kid? 
I, I remember doing this survival course. They teach you this cool thing. They give you this little tiny mirror, and they teach if you ever lost in the woods, you, you take a little mirror with you, and actually this mirror had a little hole in it so you could kind of line it up. Um, but you would actually reflect the light of the sun back, and from a great distance, you can signal at an airplane or signal a helicopter and let them know, hey, I need help down here. You can get somebody's attention. It's reflecting. Even, even from a very far distance, it's reflecting the light. And I think that is a great picture of us, how we reflect the light, how we are called to reflect the light of Jesus back into the world. We are called to be a witness. Everyone's life is a witness to something, to the value of something. What is your life a witness to the value of? And before we move to the next scripture, I want to highlight one more word here. It's believe. Believe. This is the first appearance of the most significant verb in the gospel of John. Believe. You want to do something interesting, go do a word search um, I like Bible Gateway. You just enter the keyword, believe, and then look at John. 84 uses in the book of John. Jesus at one point, John 11 says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. John, at the very end of his gospel, he gives us the whole reason he's writing this. See, you had the forerunner, John, who was, who was pointing the way to Jesus, and then you have the author, John, who interestingly never names himself in the whole gospel. He just calls himself the one that Jesus loved, which I think it sounds kind of prideful, but I think it was humility. Remember, he started out, Jesus nicknamed him and his brother the Sons of Thunder, they were hotheads. They wanted to call down fire on a village and some people that kind of dissed them. And Jesus, through being with Jesus, his heart's transformed. By the end of his life, he's known as the apostle of love. And he just has this overwhelming sense that Jesus loved even me. And he bears witness to Jesus, just like John bears witness to Jesus. And here's what John says at the end of his gospel. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's interesting. John uses this word over and over. It's the point of the gospel that he wants to get you and me and everyone in the world to see. One commentator that I like named Bruner, he says this, in the gospel of John, the word believe is never supplied with an adjective or an adverb to intensify believing, like deeply or entirely or even sincerely believe, because adverbs and adjectives have the unavoidable tendency to turn believing into a good work that persons must perform. See, believing is, is to simply believe and then to receive something from God. That's the heart of it, that as you welcome Jesus, you, you believe, and actually belief is a gift from him, but you believe and you receive something from God. You see, we have this idea, and I think for so many in church that kind of grew up in church and, and around church, you have the idea that um, the way that I have acceptance or favor with God is just kind of by being a good person. 
Now, hopefully, if you've been coming for a while, you know that's not the case because we talk about the gospel all the time. And the gospel is quite the opposite of that. The gospel agrees with Isaiah, the prophet, who says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's not the currency that God accepts. I've traveled before, and and if I go to Great Britain and try to buy, oh, man, I had the greatest, uh, found this little pub, had a 13-hour layover, the greatest roast beef sandwich I've ever had in my life. I still remember. That was like years ago. But you know what? If I tried to take out my dollars and pay for that, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. They wouldn't have gone, get out of here. Go down, find an exchange, right? Because it wasn't the currency they accept. And see, all over our culture, there's this idea. I mean, just ask five random people on the street. There's this idea if you ask them, well, well how do you think you're going to get to heaven? Or how do you think you're, you're right with God? And I guarantee you what you're going to hear is, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. Ask five random people on the street. About four out of five, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a pretty good person. Well, compared to what? Well, you know, compared to who I used to be or compared to my, my brother-in-law, you should meet him or, you know, the scumbags over there. I'm a pretty good person. And there's this idea that somehow we just live life up to a good enough standard to tip the scales in our favor, and we think we're not great. We're not like, you know, Billy Graham or Tim Tebow or something, you know. But we can kind of tip the scales in our favor. And see, the gospel comes around and says, no, that, that your morality, that thing you make yourself feel good about, there's a great um, term, I'll see if I can get it right, or John in the back will correct me, moral therapeutic deism. That somehow you being good enough, it makes you feel good about where you can kind of stand with God without actually having God involved in the process. And that's not the currency that God accepts. You have to believe. It's interesting. In John chapter 6, a little while later, there's this incredible miracle. John, uh, Jesus feeds 5,000. You know, there's like 12 baskets left over. This incredible thing from like fish sticks and stuff. He feeds them all. It's not really how the story goes, right? But Jesus feeds 5,000. It's this incredible miracle. And afterwards, he, he goes off and the crowd's pretty impressed and they find him. And Jesus turns around and he calls him out. He's like, you're, you're not following me because you, you love me, you just want to use me. You're, you're just following me because I filled your bellies and you want to get full again. And see, this is what you and I do so many times, is, is we go to Jesus not, not out of a heart of affection for him, but we approach God almost like a genie, right? If I just pray right, if I have enough faith, if I can just serve him good enough, he's going to do these things for me. And Jesus calls them out. And they're like, yep, you're right, we're busted. And they ask a very similar question to what you and I ask sometimes. They ask this. They ask, what must we do to do the work God requires? What must we do? Because, see, we, we want a checkoff list, don't we? Just give me the checkoff list. What do I need to do? You know, do I need to, what do I need to give? What do I, how, how many times do I have to serve, you know? How many times do I have to show up? Let me check it off so I can feel good. I can feel like I'm a good person, you know? Okay, I, you know, I took my wife out on a date. I didn't kick the cat. I'm feeling good about myself. And Jesus says, here's the work of God. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in. 
Now, this is a phrase you see also all over John. Believe in. He puts this really in interesting two Greek words that you don't see in ancient Greek text. And John does this uniquely. Believe in. And it almost leaves believe into. Think, think this. Think, think when, ladies, when your friend just is like, he's not that into you. It's kind of the heart. Like, believe into. Believe into. I've demonstrated this before by saying, like, it's like the stool where a, a belief, I can intellectually look at the stool and go, yeah, that's a stool. But there's an action involved where when I, when I simply believe, it's, it's demonstrated by the fact that I would sit on that stool. Believe in. Believe into. It's, it is simply believe. It's not like believe passionately. No, you just kind of believe. Sit down. Believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to receive a seat. It's the idea. And this is the idea all over. It's not belief that's devoid of any life change. It's a belief that, belief that creates life change. Believe in. And see, we have this concept in our culture. You hear it all over the time. Um, some of you might have grown up or enjoyed watching Oprah back in the day, right? And Oprah is always this like quasi-spirituality thing. It's like, oh, you believe, you, you believe in it. And believe in what? And see, in our culture, it's like I, you just believe in belief, basically. You believe in something, but that's not the point. The heart of the message of, of, of the gospel and what John would say is, no, it's, it's a person. It's who, you, who do you believe in? It's not just that you believe. That's great. In fact, James later will say, the demons believe and they, tre and they tremble. Congratulations. It's not just like, in, you, you know, an intellectual ascent into something. It's believing in the person of Jesus, the word that became flesh, that lived and, and died for you and rose again. Believing he is who he says he is, the son of God, very God in the flesh himself. And that by believing in him, you have life. It's, it's the object of who you believe in. And it's very different than our postmodern culture, which is just kind of like, well, whatever you believe is fine. Belief and belief. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And God, John would go, no. Believe in. Who? It's a who. That's the operative thing here. In fact, the most famous scripture in the Gospels, does anybody know what that is? Probably the whole Bible. John 3.16 you know it probably by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, what, believes in who? Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the object of our belief. Man, and our culture has this idea when it comes to light, when it comes to belief and spirituality, this idea that anyone's sort of quasi-spiritual and you go, you know, whether it's like the Buddhist monk or anything, they're all enlightened and anybody that sort of has an affinity with spirituality is enlightened. Jesus came and said, I am the light. And apart from me, you are in the darkness. That there is actually a kingdom of darkness that is opposed to light. And it's only as Jesus comes in and pierces that darkness that you are enlightened. So you're spiritual. Congratulations. Do you know him? Do you know him? That's the object. That's the focus. That's the meaning. You know, 
the interesting thing about this little passage, and as we go to this next one, what, we, what we're going to see is that actually the most religious people in the world at this time of history missed it. They were in darkness. They missed God in their very midst. Check this out, verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so when Jesus Christ arrives, you have the second member of the Trinity, and all of a sudden, that becomes clear to us. And we see who he is. And if you missed last week, um, I mentioned this, that all the way back in the time of Jesus, the philosophers were, were the, basically Trinitarian thought was around before Jesus. They had seen it in the scriptures that God is that a, a Godhead, a multiple in one. They had seen that. And so Trinitarian thought, the, the idea of the three in one was not some foreign concept to the culture completely. Their philosophers had talked about it and actually tied it in with the logos or the word. It wasn't until the second century after the destruction of the temple when um, what we know as modern Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, banned that kind of thinking. And it was as Christianity exploded around the world. And so the second person of the Trinity arrives, the person, the Messiah, the person they had written and speculated about, he arrives, but they didn't recognize him. Have you ever not recognized someone famous? I was up at uh, my, my friend's ranch. Maybe you've, you've seen somebody in like there just in a ball cap and, and then you walked away and somebody went, do you know that was like so-and-so off TV, and you're like, oh, wow. Anybody done that? I was up at a friend's ranch up in Crawford, and uh, it's right next to Mad Dog Ranch up there, which uh, was Joe Cocker's ranch. And this pudgy British balding guy walks up by me on the dirt road, and we're just hanging out up here at a youth camp, and he's like, excuse me. I can't do a British accent. I'll try. He says, excuse me. Um, I can't, see? Have you seen my golden retriever? And, um, and then I realized, that's Joe Cocker. Like, this guy's a rock star. And for anybody, like, under 40 in the room, I mean, he's before my time. Well, before, yeah, 69 Woodstock. Some of you were there. Some of you remember it, right? Wah, 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 with a little help from my friends. Awesome song. It's Joe Cocker, right? And I have this realization. But they didn't recognize. Jesus arrives to his own people, and they don't first, they don't recognize him. The world does not recognize that God is actually in their midst. And this is the first tragedy of humanity when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to, to God, is we don't recognize him. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Creation speaks to the existence of God. Romans says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And part of, the, part of the point of the vast universe that God created is so that we would look up at it and we would just go, wow, you've had those experiences. You live in Colorado. 
You've gone up to the mountains. You've gone, wow, right? Stand on the top of a 14er. Wow. I remember being in Hawaii. Some of you love the ocean. I love the ocean. I was in Hawaii. I was 19 years old. And we were driving out to a church service one Sunday morning, this little kind of country church. And we drove by the ocean and just walls of water rolling in. And I'm just like, my jaw drops, right? Nobody's out surfing. It's just huge, awe-inspiring. Or you go out and you look at the universe at night. And you're like, wow. And you know the point of that is to make us aware of the weightiness, the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory that God, the weight of who God is, that there is a creator that created all of this, and it's designed to make us feel very small. And in that feeling of smallness, to reach out for him, to ask questions, to seek him. In fact, Paul, when he's preaching to a bunch of um, pagan philosophers in Athens, he says this, God did this when he's talking about him creating everything. He says, God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. They didn't recognize him. It's the first tragedy. And secondly, they did not receive him. Their very scripture had prophesied him for hundreds and hundreds of years. The scholars intently looked for him. They were in expectation that Messiah would arrive at any moment. But they didn't welcome him. They didn't receive him. Why? Why didn't they? And why don't we welcome? Why don't we receive the truth of Jesus in our culture and our time? And I've got a couple thoughts around that. I think number one is we, we just don't think we need Jesus. See, it goes back to what we talked about, the currency that, that God accepts. See the cat rubbing up on my leg trying to get in? That didn't work, right? What did? Someone in my family, a little girl that loves the cat so much, it just opened the door, right? And carries the cat in. We think we can just compare ourselves to others, to our past selves. I cleaned up, man. You should have seen me a few years ago. I think I'm doing pretty good. Got my family back in church. Morality. Your dead works are not a currency that, that God accepts. And for many, I think just they, they don't really think they need Jesus. For some, I think it's, it's we don't think that Jesus or God would accept us. Some of you, it's like, man, if you knew my past, if you knew where I've been. And I would just have to remind you that most of the people that God chose, chooses to use mightily in Scripture were hot messes. They make your life look pretty tame. Maybe Moses, David, you've heard of Bathsheba, right? Then he wrote half the Bible, not half, a good chunk of the uh, Old Testament. David. How about Paul presided over the murder and arresting of Christians in the early church, hated Christians and followers of Jesus? And God says, I think I'll use him. I think I'll redeem him. No one is beyond the grace of God. That's the beauty of, of believing, simply believing and receiving the gift that he offers. So we don't think we know, need Jesus. We don't think God would accept us. And third, I think this is a big deal for some, is that you know that embracing Jesus would change 
things for you, and you do not want to change. John says this a few verses after the most famous verse in John 3.16. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light. And see, for so many, it's just like, I know, I know my life is not in a place right now where I can put following Jesus, belief in Jesus together with how I'm living my life. And for so many people, that cognitive dissonance ends up in them abandoning Jesus. And in fact, um, so many, you see this interesting, that, that lifestyle leads to them beginning to doubt Jesus. In fact, there's a phrase, another pastor uses it, that most people don't just wake up and abandon Jesus. They behave their way out of belief. You probably know somebody like that. But all of a sudden, the life decisions they've made no longer are compatible with what they believe Jesus is calling them to live in life. And so before you know it, it's like, yeah, I don't really know if I believe all that anymore. It wasn't an intellectual thing for so many. You see in this passage, the real tragedy of humans, humanity's rebellion against God. God reveals himself to us in his creation, in the image of God, in our conscience. And then he actually comes. This is what John's telling us. The light comes into his creation. Next week, we'll see he tabernacles. He, he sets up shop right in the middle of us. In humanity, we didn't just reject him or ignore him. We killed him. It's the tragedy of humanity. And yet, there's good news. Here's the good news, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of of God. John says, here's the offer. You can become a child of God, part of God's family. How do you do that? Well, three things. You're not born into it. And this is a real big deal because your parents' faith cannot save you. This is a big deal for many people who grew up in church and never really believed in Jesus for themselves. It's just sort of been the thing they've done. Your parents' faith can't save you. You have to decide. You have to receive the gift for yourself. It's not about bloodline. No one gets in because of proximity to the truth. You have to embrace the truth. You have to embrace the light. You have to embrace Jesus. Now, here's what parents do, and probably for so many of you in, in, in the room, this was your story, is you came in a family where, came, you grew up in a family where they prayed, where you talked about Jesus, where they brought you to church, and it was like your parents were piling up kindling all around your heart so that when the Holy Spirit um, sparked it, when, when belief, you know, was, emerged in your heart, when, when the Holy Spirit sparked that, you just came to life. And that's a beautiful thing. Parents, listen up. That's our job as parents is to cultivate the conditions that when belief is sparked in the hearts of our kids, man, they take off. They embrace it. They love the truth. That's what that Home Point Center is all about up there is helping equip you guys to have 
of conversations and tools to raise your kids in the knowledge and the wisdom of God. But you don't get in by proximity. You have to, you have to believe, you have to receive for yourself. It wasn't also something of human decision or willpower. It wasn't you being a good person that gets you in. Not because of personal effort, moral effort, personal spiritual effort, or religious activity. How do you become part of the family of God? What does it say? All who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. And in his name, when it uses it like this, it really just means in him, in who he is. You receive, you welcome him, and you just believe. That's how, that's how it happens. You welcome him. You take the gift. Someone gives you a gift, holds it out to you. What do you have to do? Just receive. Just receive it. You receive it. And then you invite him to work in your heart. For some, you're like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of believe, but I'm just not sure what yet. There's this guy um, that wants his son healed. And he's like, like Jesus, if you could just, if you can do this. Um, and Jesus goes, if? If you believe, Jesus says. And, and this guy looks up at Jesus, one of the most honest prayers that you can pray. And he says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. In other words, I kind of believe, Jesus. And Jesus goes, that'll get you there. And he heals his son. And the point being is this. For some of you, you still struggle. You don't have to get all your questions answered to move into belief. You may still have doubts and questions, but there's an honesty about going, Jesus, man, I, I, I really kind of believe. Help me in my unbelief. And you know, this church, we say this, you can belong before you believe. This is, a, this is a place where you can come and continue to ask questions as you investigate who Jesus is. To all who did receive him, to b- believed in his name, he gave the right to become adopted into the family of God. And how does that happen? Through a spiritual birth. You know, the purpose of adoption is to have an active living relationship with a family, and that changes the way we live, doesn't it? That changes our life. You remember I told you about Joe as we began. Joe from, from New Mexico. Man, our family loved him. Our family wanted him to be part of our family. My dad, like, was such an example of the father's heart of love towards this guy. And yet, in the end, Joe couldn't do it. Joe was 15. He said, yeah, I got a couple years left, and I'm kind of out on my own. And there's something that kept Joe from embracing family. And for some of you, your personal autonomy, the the ability to self-direct your life is the thing that's keeping you from saying yes to Jesus. Say yes to him. What could be more valuable than being part of the family of God? Would you stand?
So in a room this size and with those joining us online, I know for some of you, and your story is I grew up in a church family, but it was always just always about morality and doing right and, you know, living principles out. And, and at some point I just was like, I can't do this, and I gave up on the whole thing. And you probably, for, for some of you, your story is you had some kind of crazy years. And then you realize, my life's kind of unraveling. Or you had kids, and you're like, you realize, I want to give my kids that sort of moral foundation. And for some of you, that's your story. That's why you're here. But, but in spite of that, you never really understood the gospel. That the gospel is believing and receiving. And from there, yes, transformation comes. The Holy Spirit is going to come and work transformation in your life. But it doesn't start with you just working hard and gritting your teeth. It's embracing Jesus. It's just simply going, okay, I welcome this Jesus I, I, I receive. And allowing him to work belief and go, I, I get it. I believe. Others, you understand the offer. You're just not sure you want it, like we just said. Y- you like your autonomy. You like your independence. You realize that being in the family of God will change and reorder the way you live. You might have to let go of something. You might have to change directions. And John would plead with you and say this, eternity hangs in the balance. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. And salvation does not come from your moral efforts. It comes from believing and receiving. John will say, as he said here, here's the offer. Light in the darkness of your life. Life, both eternal and now in abundance, the life you were created to live. And here's the question. Will you believe it? Will you receive it? Will you walk in it here today? Will you walk in it? Some of you, you've believed, you've received But as the Holy Spirit has done that work of transformation, there's an area or areas in your life where you've resisted, you've you've pushed back. And because of that, you feel like you have a very dead, cold relationship with Jesus right now. He's inviting you to open your hands, to turn to the light, to allow the light to come into your life and to walk with his spirit, to cooperate, to turn from grieving his spirit and walking in his joy in real life. That's what I want to pray for you for today. And Lord, for those in the room right now that that's them, they know they've been resisting you. Would you let them just come back into obedience and relationship with you? Work in their heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. Break that down right now. And Lord, for the one in the room or those joining online that have not embraced it for the first time, Lord, maybe now's the moment and they, they know, they like, I, I get it, I believe it. Would you just say, Jesus, I receive it right now. I want to live my life for you. I want to turn from my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Transform me. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you for who you are and all you've done for us. We pray these things in your name, the holy name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.